This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Russell Shorto to the program. How are you doing, sir? I'm very well, Bob. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's a pleasure to have uh, Russell Shorto on our podcast. Russell Shorto wrote a best-selling book on the history of the originally Dutch colony that is now New York City, his book, The Island at the Center of the World, a, a bestseller, I think, back in 2004. And he has a new book, and we'll talk about that, I promise, in just a moment. But I wanted to bring up the fact that with that best-selling book, uh, Russell, you researched much of it in Albany, New York. And, and why was that? Uh, well, it's a, as you say, it's a book about uh, the Dutch colony of New Netherland, which gave rise to New York and New Netherland was uh, uh, a, a colony that it sat between New England and Virginia. So it comprised the whole sort of middle section of the eastern seaboard. All are parts of New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Delaware, and a little bit of Pennsylvania. And the uh, record, and of course, the, the, what people know about it is New Amsterdam at the mm-hmm. tip of Manhattan Island. And uh, the records of the colony are in the State Library in Albany. And uh, they have been systematically, uh, doggedly translated and published since 1974 by uh, the New Netherland Institute, which is in Albany. So that was the... That was the reason. Yeah. That book. And I just wanted to bring up that the uh, driving force of the New Netherland Institute, a native of uh, our part of the of the state, uh, Fort Plain native Charles Gehring, uh, is uh, done a lot. You know, or the bulk of the translations, as I understand it. But you would un- understand that uh, better. So you must have worked uh, specifically with him. In fact, I uh, had lunch with him yesterday. Um, uh, he, I'm in, I'm in Albany right now, and um, yeah, Charlie's from Fort Plain, and uh, he uh, is quite an authority on uh, on the whole region. Yeah, in fact, I, I've, the my local history columns. I did one with him because at one point he worked for the railroad as a train dispatcher, and he had this uh, gripping tale of a train derailment that you know he was on duty for. Charlie has many gripping tales. Some of them go back into the 1600s, and the way he talks about it, you'd think he was there. That's true. Well, yeah, he talks about the, uh, I think he was a pharmacist, but this man who did the first European to walk into the Mohawk Valley for any number of miles. Oh, he was a barber surgeon. Barber surgeon. Uh, Did I I say pharmacist? Brendan Bogart was his name. And that is a really a kind of thrilling, wild tale of the, I guess you would say the Wild West, yeah. but it's Mohawk Valley. Uh, yeah, un- unbelievable, really. I mean, all the twists. 30s, yeah. yeah. Right. Well, so, but that was then, uh, and this is now, but since you brought up that you were in Albany, my understanding was that you were at the New Netherlands Institute, and apparently that's the case, and I don't know if this happened in Albany, I presume that it did, but maybe it didn't, that you were inducted into the New York State Writers Institute Hall of Fame. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, that was just the other day. That was at the Princeton Club in Manhattan, which maybe is a, I don't know if that's an appropriate location for it or not, or not but uh, no, it was a lovely, uh, uh, I wasn't even aware that such a thing existed, but it turns out there are all sorts of prominent writers that are uh, part of that. This is part of the effort of the Writers Institute, which is based in Albany, I believe. That's right. And I don't, I'm not sure the, of the uh, linkages and how it's all put together, but it's but the Writers Institute, in, in which 
Albany Albany is uh, is one of the uh, I guess one of the sponsors of the event. Well, let's get to your latest book, which is about the American Revolution. And also, you presented a talk on uh, your new book at the 2018 Conference on the American Revolution, sponsored by the Fort Plain Museum, held at uh, Fulton Montgomery uh, Community College. The new book is uh, called Revolution Song, a story of American freedom. What do you mean by Revolution Song? Um, I, I, the, I never, to, to be honest, uh, tried to write a book about the American Revolution itself, but that is what it ended up being. Um, I had this idea to write, um, to look at that period from the lives of people from very different backgrounds. I mean, even after all of this time and after, you know, so many thousands of books have been written about it, we still tend to get that period from the perspective of, of uh, the men in the powdered wigs, you know, the, mm-hmm. the elites. Um, so I really wanted to see, like, what if I could see myself and, and, and write about that era from the life, the life of a slave, of a loyalist woman, of a Native American, you know? And so slowly, I, over the course of a couple of years, really, it took me to just gather the people. And I, I gathered kind of a, a, a collection of six individuals whose lives, they had to be well documented. So that took a lot of time because, you know, those men in the powdered wigs do have well documented lives. They wrote lots of letters and they're carefully preserved. But, you know, slaves, not so much. Native Americans, almost not at all. But I did uh, slowly pull together a group of them, and uh, w- what I tried to do was sort of weave their stories together into one story. And then to me, the you know, when I sat and stood there and looked at what I had, the metaphor that came to my mind was a musical one. Like they were all kind of different voices singing parts of the same song. So that's, that's why I call it Revolution Song. Of the six, you do have one uh, powdered wig guy, and that's George Washington. Actually, I have two powdered wig guys, <laughs> uh, because I also have the, the British uh, aristocrat in there, too, which I thought was an interesting part of the story that we often don't get. Okay. and But some of the others, as you indicate, were, were not a part of that upper-class uh, group. Well, let me uh, go through some, uh, some of the others. Um, Venture Smith was an African man who freed himself and his family from slavery? Yeah, and what's uh, really compelling to me about his story is it starts uh, in, uh, he was a, uh, the, the, the son of a, of a village leader, he calls his father a prince, in West Africa. And his village was attacked by an invading African army. He watched his father be tortured and killed. He was about 10 years old at the time. He was captured. He was uh, dragged hundreds of miles to the coast to a place called Anamabo, which was one of the places from which Europeans would buy slaves from Africans. And uh, so he was sold into slavery, and it happened that the ship that was in the harbor, it was called the Charming Susanna, and it was from Newport, Rhode Island. So he ended up eventually being taken to New England, and uh, he was raised in slavery and slowly um, got a wife, 
had children, uh, but had this conviction and wanted to be free. And he he developed. He was a guy, he was a, a person of unusual stature. I mean, physically for one thing, he was very imposing in size, but um, he seemed to compel people's regard. And mm-hmm. so much so that um, the last time he was going to be sold to a new owner, he went around and interviewed the prospective owners and sort of chose which one would, would buy him. Really? Um, and, and, and he did that based on uh, this man was a uh, he felt to be, to be upstanding as a prominent businessman, and they had agreed in advance that over time he would allow him to buy himself out of slavery, and so that's what he did. Well, and at some point, he didn't he help his former master or owner uh, in some uh, bailed him out financially? Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. So later, then he's he's a free man. Years later, he's a free man. He keeps in touch. I mean, and you know, these are small communities and people have their networks and the, and his former owner's name was Oliver Smith. And in fact, venture Smith took his last name from him. Um, and later he is, uh, in bankruptcy and, um, that family is in trouble and venture Smith actually, um, helps, helps them out in a, it was in a complicated way involving, uh, real estate and, and sort of co-signing for loans mm-hmm. and things like that. What did the American Revolution mean to Venture Smith? That's an excellent question. He, late in life, he dictated um, his life story. He never learned to read and write. Um, and it is pretty detailed, uh, but he never once mentions the revolution. And I think that's fascinating because Everything I was just talking about, you know, being a slave, buying him, buying his freedom and so on, happens while white Americans are building this, this, this kind of storm cloud of, of uh, uh, anger against uh, the British and clamoring for freedom, and then the war happens. So all that's happening right around him. But it's almost like, you know, there were a lot of Americans at the time— who thought, okay, we're fighting for freedom, and freedom will mean freedom for everyone. Mm-hmm. And then there was a lot of um, anger when it became clear that, in fact, they were not, were not going to free the slaves. Right. In fact, uh, some of the people around Washington, uh, Alexander Hamilton, for one, um, were really angry about that. So Venture Smith seems, it seems to me, he never trusted for a minute that that would happen. So he had to take matters into his own hands. So what's interesting is while everything is going on, this whole fight for freedom, he's carrying out his own personal fight for freedom. Hmm. Let me uh, ask you about another one of the uh, six in the book, uh, the Seneca chief corn planter. Um, again, we have another local angle, if you can bear with me on that, that I believe his father was a, a European named John Abiel, who lived in our area, lived in lived in Fort Plain, I think, and Corn Planter at some point saved his father's life during a raid during the Revolution. But tell us about Corn Planter. He did get involved in the Revolution. Yeah, you know, the I, I really wanted to have the Native perspective, for one thing, in this book. We tend to think of the American Revolution as having two sides. Well, there are actually many sides, but uh, um, and, in, and, and in fact, when you're really 
down in the documents and looking at individual lives, it almost at times seems like every single person was on, had their own side. Um, but each individual tribe and nation uh, was, you know, trying to figure out for itself how to how to deal with this upheaval caused by the revolution. So, Corn Planter was a Seneca, which was one of the six uh, tri- uh, nations of the uh, Iroquois Confederacy, and. Um, as you said, his his mother was uh, a prominent Seneca woman. His father was actually a white man of Dutch ancestry from Fort Plain, New York, mm-hmm. and he was kind of a uh, black sheep of his family. He right. uh, was a rum trader among the Iroquois, and that's how he wound up in uh, Corn Planters Village, which was uh, called uh, Conawagas at what is now Avon, New York, and. Um, he grew up, Corn Planter did, in a very native context, but with this awareness that he was different. His father was was absent, and he was very keenly aware of that absence. And as an adult, he said that other kids in the village would make fun of him because his skin color was different. Everyone knew who this, this man Abel and that he was the father. So this really preyed on him. So Corn Planter then... As the war is happening, the Iroquois have the, hold a big council, and they are deciding what they should do. And the British, by this point, want to get them involved on their side. Mm-hmm. Corn Planter argues that they should stay out of it. He says this is a family quarrel, he called it, between the Americans and the British, and we don't understand it, and we don't have anything to do with that. He gets overruled. Other um, Others... You know, say that, no, the, the British are stronger, we should side with them. Uh, so that's what happens, and once that decision is made, Corn Planter goes along with it, and he becomes a war leader, leading these attacks against American forts and settlements. And in one of those attacks, as you said, at Fort Plain, he, in the midst of the smoke and the fire, he recognizes an old man, and he sees that it's his father. And he pulls him out of this uh, burning building, and about 10 miles, uh, one of the uh, witnesses said that about 10 miles down the path, he stopped and turned and started yelling at him and said, don't you know who I am? I'm your son. And and so he's still in the middle of the war, in the middle of the, the revolution. Mm-hmm. This Native American turns to his European father and is expressing this, you know, this, this, very human, intimate anger that he has for him, uh, and this frustration that he had never recognized him as his son. So um, the the war ends, the the British lose, which means the Iroquois lose, but then the Iroquois turn around and appoint Corn Planter to be their representative to negotiate with the new American government. Mm -hmm. So then he has a whole other sort of career, which is you know, he's in this impossible position of trying to get something out of the Americans at a time when the Americans are already kind of overrunning their land. So he really kind of represents the whole quandary that the, the natives are in. Hmm. We're talking with Russell Shorto, author of the book Revolution Song. It's about the American Revolution. We'll be back with Russell Shorto in just a moment. This is Bob Cudmore on behalf of the Historians Podcast with a word about our GoFundMe page, which keeps the podcast on the Internet. 
We welcome uh, your donations at uh, GoFundMe.com forward slash Historians 2018. It's easy to donate online. If you'd rather not donate online using your credit card, you could write out a check to me, Bob Cudmore, and send it to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Uh, Joining us is Russell Shorto, who's author of the book Revolution Song, about the American Revolution, in which he uh, has six characters and and has put together a great deal of information about their lives and follows their lives uh, through the Revolution uh, and beyond. We talked about Venture Smith. We've talked about Corn Planter. Um, There's a a woman among the six, um, Margaret Coughlin or Coughlin, uh, who was she? She was the uh, at, when the war breaks out. She's a teenager. She was the daughter of a British officer. Um, the Americans, uh, the American officers like George Washington and others, had thought that her father would side with them, but in fact he stayed loyal. Uh, she was um, their their house was in New York City in Manhattan. And there's a time early in the war when the British are amassing their forces on Staten Island because they're going to invade Manhattan. And the the, the overall British strategy was that if they take New York City and they can control the Hudson River, then they can split off the the Massachusetts they thought was the hotbed of the rebellion. And if they have the Hudson River, then they've split Massachusetts off from the rest of the colonies, and then the war will end. So New York was the first great uh, focal point. Mm-hmm. And this girl, Margaret, was caught up right in the middle of the battle for New York. She was trapped, she would have said, behind enemy lines on Manhattan with the American officers. And her father was on Staten Island with the whole British Army. And uh, so she interacts with all of them, with Washington and all of the others. And uh, she's very defiant because she's taking on, at that point, her father's uh, principles. So she believes that, uh, you know, she's she's a good, loyal subject of, of England. So she's caught up in the war in a very different way as a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's a very fiery uh, temperament. She, she gets very sassy with Washington. Um, and uh, that continues. And... What, what really compelled me to, to kind of focus on her was, um, you know, the, the, the subtitle of the book involves the, the notion of freedom. And, of course, we all know that the American Revolution is about freedom. But freedom was a very broad thing at the time. I mean, it was we think of freedom in the revolution as this kind of this political notion. We're fighting for independence and, and to set up a democratic system. But it was part of this broad wave of freedom that had come out of Europe in the previous century, which had all kinds of manifestations, one of which was women's issues. Now, you know, it wouldn't be it would be an anachronism to talk about a woman's movement in the 1770s or 1780s. But there was kind of a cutting edge of it. And the cutting edge was people were saying at that time a woman a girl shouldn't have to marry against her will. So the idea of forced marriage was wrong. And people were, there was a play going on in New York with just that theme. 
during this time. People were writing uh, newspaper articles about it. And that's exactly what happened to her. In the middle of all of this, her father decides she's going to marry another British officer, somebody she hated. Mm -hmm. She tried to resist. He was very abusive. Um, Her father insisted, so she had to marry him. And it was a complete disaster. They fought. He he was abusive to her. Uh, And that ends up, eventually he drags this husband, John Coghlan, drags her to Europe and she just runs away from him. They're in a, an inn in Wales, and he he's busy checking in. She walks out the back door of the inn, walks into the Welsh mountains, mm-hmm. walks for 60 miles, never sees him again. She just has this dramatic will, and that's what really motivated me to, like, I had to include her, even though she's not exactly representative of, mm-hmm. you know, she's not a typical woman of the period. But in a way, she, she embodied this, this uh, the, this notion of the idea that a woman could possibly be independent. Hmm. Another of the characters are, and you write about in the book, or I mean the historical figures, um, is from upstate New York, Abraham Yates, who uh, is based in Albany. What was his uh, tale? Yates was um, a as either Albany was still a very Dutch place. Um, at the time, going back to the Dutch period. And Yeats's uh, father was English, his mother was Dutch. He grew up with both languages. Dutch was literally his mother tongue. And, you know, one thing about, about him that attracted me is we don't typically appreciate how much the revolution uh, involved a kind of class struggle among Americans. And Yeats was really a man of the people, a working class person. His father was a blacksmith. Yates, um, uh, there wasn't even enough room at the forge, at his father's forge, because he had four older brothers. So when he was old enough, he was apprenticed to a shoemaker. So, um, And his um, account book is still in the State Library in Albany. And his accounts there, when he's making shoes for people, depending on who it is in Albany he's making shoes for, he writes the account in either Dutch or in English. Mm. So he'll say, you know, ain par schoonen for your kind, one pair of shoes for your child, mm. uh, and then give the price and so on. He's early on, he's attracted to politics, and he is kind of born with a, uh, with a chip on his shoulder. He's, he's very distrustful of, of elites. And first in Albany, that meant the great Dutch families that controlled, like the Ben Rensselaers, who controlled, mm-hmm. you know, large areas and who controlled politics and pretty much everything else. So he runs for office and becomes a, an alderman in the city council and then starts moving up. Uh, so he gives this kind of street view of of the events in the 1750s and 1760s as you're moving toward the revolution. And then he's one of the early ones to to uh, declare that America should be independent. But what's really interesting to me, so then during the war, he's, he, he has a lot of different jobs, and he's working with the patriots in and, and many different capacities. He's one of the co-authors of the New York State Constitution. But after the war, he sort of turns on the leaders because he thinks that they are creating an, a homegrown elite 
to replace the foreign elite. He basically says, well, you're just creating a new aristocracy now with mm-hmm. all the you know, important men in the positions. Um, so he's, he becomes a prominent anti-federalist. He's against the Constitution. He thinks it's, uh, it's a setting up a system in which uh, the elites are going to rule everyone else. So he then represents you know, American populism, which then would uh, go on and, and spread and have many different uh, manifestations throughout American history. We're, uh, we're talking with Russell Shorto about his book, Revolution Song. We're getting toward the end of the of our time, but uh, now you have two more characters. I haven't asked you about Lord Sackville or George Germain, the Br- British leader, and George Washington, um, both the guys in wigs, as you as you said. Let me, I hate to say it, skip Germain, just ask you about Washington. I gather Washington is a major figure in your book, or maybe had to be. Uh, anything new you can tell us about him? Well, he was actually the last person I chose for the book, and he, and he's, you might say, the most obvious person of the whole period. Um, but uh, he's, yeah, I mean, t- I found that he's, I mean, for one thing, Washington is kind of famously enigmatic. People never quite get a sense because he has this reserve that he hides behind. And I felt that, you know, one of the marvels of doing research in this day and age is with the Internet, I just literally lived with his writings for a period of years, you know, every day reading his letters and so on. And I kind of felt like I got him. I got a sense of who he was and what motivated him. It had to do with his childhood, with the fact that when he was 11 years old, his father died, and that meant he had been raised with this expectation that he would be able to go to England to be educated, to be a proper gentleman. And then when when that happened, he couldn't. So he always has this sort of feeling of inferiority. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, from that moment, he decided he would kind of invent this this persona of a gentleman for himself. And he goes about, you know, learning everything that a gentleman should learn, how to ride and how to fence and, you know, and how to how to hold yourself, how to hmm. how to walk with and talk with uh, important people. And he studies books about this on his own. So he creates this. Uh, and then he, he, then when he ever becomes, he leads the Continental Army. He reads books about that because he'd never done that before. So he creates that. And then when he becomes president, he has to create the presidency. So you see this constant inventing of a new self, which then eventually becomes the, uh, you know, the the the, the leader, the, the founder of the nation. Russell Shorto, author of Revolution Song, A Story of American Freedom. He was a speaker at the fourth annual conference on the American Revolution held in the Mohawk Valley and sponsored by Fort Plain Museum. I, we have about a minute left now, but I did want to ask you about Johnstown, Pennsylvania, where you grew up in the 1950s. Sounds to me it's sort of like some of the mill towns here in upstate New York. That's your next project about the uh, heyday of the 50s and 60s when the steel mills were booming there? That's right. Um, it's actually, um, I grew up a little later than the period I'm writing about. I'm writing about my grandfather, uh, who I'm named after, who uh, ran the mafia in my hometown, <laughs> in Johnstown, in the other Johnstown. Um, and uh, so it's a small town mob story, and it's about me looking for my roots, and it's about recreating this world when towns like that were were booming and the steel mills were, were booming, and it was really... Uh, a different era. 
Well, it's been a pleasure to have Russell Shorto on the program. His book's published in 14 languages. They've won numerous awards. I didn't mention, in addition to being a a senior scholar at the New Netherland Institute, he's a contributing writer at New York Times Magazine. Uh, The book that we talked about primarily, Revolution Song, A Story of American Freedom by uh, Russell Shorto. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.